0: Mark, I think we should uh, change our worship style. Yeah, too. I, I want to see Tim Glasgow up here doing this. Oh, yeah. And Dave Hunsinger, Ward and, Jackson. I'd say so, Darren Rolfe, no <laughs> Darren question. Rolf. Yeah, pretty much everybody. We're going to start doing number seven, seven. Yeah. Isn't it great being with other nations? Isn't there something good about that? wholesome, healthy, righteous, just a taste of the new Jerusalem when all the nations are gathered together. For all of eternity, we get to spend time watching this. I will never be able to dance like that, um, but I may have a lot of time to learn. <laughs> just It just comes natural. Isn't that great, just being with them? It's so fun. Well, let's start with, um, that was fantastic. Now I want you to lower your expectations for the sermon a little. Um the Spears and us got back at midnight last night from 12 days in Nepal, and so the body's present. I'm not quite sure where the mind is. It's somewhere between here and France, I think, and about 1 o'clock today, I'm going to be sleeping, And um, but it is good to be back. There's something really fun about being part of a church and a home that you enjoy, and uh, we couldn't wait to get back. We got back last night at midnight, got out of the car. We prayed together at the end of our trip and got out of the car and said, okay, what are you here?" No horns, no dogs, no taxis yelling at each other. It's just quiet. (laughs) It was really good to come home. Good to be with you. Well, we are in the middle of a series talking about a lavish faith, a faith that is very generous, overflowing in generosity. And um, we've been slowly trying to answer the question, uh, what does it look like to be generous? Why are we even talking about it? And I've argued over several weeks that we want to talk about it because that's what God created us for. That's what we're made for. You know, I, when I look at the New Testament and I, I see you know, instructions to do things all throughout here, here's how I look at that. I don't look at it as a set of rules. I look at it as when Jesus walked up to the layman and he healed him and he said, stand up and walk. Some of you have heard me say this. And why did he have to tell them to stand up and walk? because he didn't know he could, right? And so when the Lord redeemed us, that opened the door to all kinds of behaviors and things in our life that we didn't even know we could do. So when he says to be generous, for instance, why would he tell us that? Because we didn't know we could. Now, it sounds kind of strange to say it that way, but that's what we're created for. We talked all the way back in the beginning about the garden, and the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. In a world in the ancient Near East when the gods were to uh, be feared and to appease, our God spoke and created all of this for our enjoyment. By the way, that's still the way it works around the world. We were Last week, we were at a Hindu uh, temple where they sacrificed animals and, um, in Nepal, and we were at a Buddhist temple, and, and it's all about appeasing the gods. If you, can, if you can keep the gods happy, life will be okay. What a difference it makes that the one true living God just delights in us and delights in living life with us and loves to give gifts and blessings and loves to be involved in our lives. And we got that when we looked at Genesis that the creation account is the story of a fantastic God who gave us all of this to enjoy. And all of this to learn from, about him because it reflects his glory. And then we went from there and talked about greed and slavery to greed, slavery to finances and debt. That was the Sunday before I left for Nepal. And I, I told you at that time, and I'll say it again today, that I look at you and I see a very generous congregation. I'm very proud of you. And yet um, I'm, I'm not in your hearts. And I encourage each of you to explore that question, am I a greedy person? Only you can answer that. I can't answer that for you. Uh, I don't think that you are, but but I may be wrong. So I challenge you to think about that. When Nancy and I were in seminary, we um, um, neither of us were working. Our commitment when we went to seminary was that we weren't going to work. We needed the Lord to take care of all the bills. And uh, so we just prayed and said, Lord, it's real simple. If you If you pay for seminary, we will go. And if you don't, we'll be happy serving you. In Germany, that's where we were living. We'll just stay as missionaries. So it's your call. We really want to go, but we need you to help us. So um, we prayed that for two years. And um, when the time finally came for us to move back to the States, um, I had not received any financial aid. Seminary is expensive. And uh, my commitment was to uh, not have any debt. And the Lord is going to have to pay for it. And so, um, then about two weeks before our deadline, when we had to give them the, the address of where we we're going to move, I figured out what the last day was. If we had heard from the Lord, we we're going to give them Dallas. If we hadn't from, from heard from the Lord, we we're going to give them Denver for a year furlough, and then we'd go back overseas. So, about two weeks before, about eleven o'clock at night, I got a phone call, and uh, this man <laughs> introduced himself as the director of admissions at Dallas Seminary. And um, he said, congratulations on getting accepted. I wanted to call and tell you that you've been selected to receive this scholarship. Well, the average scholarship at, at most seminaries is around 500 a semester. It's not a lot. There's not a lot of financial aid available. And I said, okay. Um, I don't know how the Lord is going to raise the rest of it. And he said, um, we read all your report and we, uh, all of your application and everything. We'd like to join the Lord in what he's doing in your ministry by paying for your degree. And I said, well, how much is the scholarship? And he says, full tuition, fees, books, everything, 100%. We pick one student a year. It's not advertised in the catalog, and you're the the one that we chose. I just cried. The next morning, I got a call from the housing office, and they said, uh, we just had a man offer us a four-bedroom home. It's on uh, 30 acres of property outside of Dallas and he wants to rent it to a returning missionary family average rental price at that time was around 1200 and he wants to rent it for 400 are you interested <laughs> and i said yes i am and he said okay but there's one catch he said you share the property with a horse riding academy a school they are interested in giving your children free horse riding lessons if you watch over the property at nighttime. oh well, my two girls have been praying for two years. We're going to Texas. Can we ride horses? <laughs> and um, so I cried again. That afternoon, I got another call from uh, my boss at Cadence International. I had just resigned. Uh, I was getting ready to resign to go to seminary. And he said, uh, all your supporters that have supported you for four years, a bunch of them contacted us and would like to continue paying your salary while you're in seminary because um, they feel this is an important next step for you. Uh, so, in 24-hour period, less than God took care of all of our our needs. So now we're sitting in in uh, we're sitting at the seminar uh, at in school, and, and the, the, our bills were there, and um, <clears throat> I didn't have a didn't have a lot of money. Missionaries don't make a ton, and um, and I was short in money. And Nancy took the kids to go play at the park, and. And I just sat there, and I just started to pray, and I just started to weep. And I said, Lord, I I don't have any place else to turn. Um, We live a simple life. We live debt-free, and we don't have a lot of income or savings, and I need your help. Uh, And I have all these bills here, and I don't know where to go. Would you please help us? And so uh, I got done, kind of wiped my eyes, and come on, suck it up. You can do it. I'm a guy. I can handle it. So I opened up the mail, and there's a check for $5,000. And it was sent by a young couple who we had led to the Lord in Germany a few years before. They were engineers. They had both been laid off. So I didn't even tell them about our need. You know, sometimes you ask people, would you pray about this? I didn't even want them to be burdened with my need because they're both unemployed. So I didn't even say a word, and they were living in uh, Oregon. So they sent me a check for $5,000 with a letter that said, um, we've been praying a lot, and we have been convicted that we are still too greedy. Um, we've saved money. And so we just prayed and said, Lord, what do we do with this money? And your name came up, and we thought you might need it. So here's a check for 5000 So I cried all over again. <laughs> That's the way the Lord took care of us and has continued to take care of us. But what I, I use that illustration because right smack in the middle of life, this couple who's unemployed, and said, Lord, we don't want to be greedy and we're convicted that they were. So I encourage you to ask the question, how much is enough? God promises to take care of your needs, but but as Americans, one of the things that we enjoy often is an abundance. And that's a great thing. That's not a bad thing. We should jump up and down and praise God for that because that's a statement of his involvement with us in our lives. So I, I've... I'll say it over and over again. I look at you as a very generous congregation, but I'm not inside of your heart. You are. So my, incur- my encouragement is to look in the mirror and pray and ask that question. When is enough enough? Do I have enough? Nancy and I ask that question every week. Last week, Tom brought in Galatians 5 and the whole freedom and Christ peace. Do you realize what a blessing it is that God has acted in our life in such a way that we now have freedom? We can now choose to honor him. We can now choose to love him. We can choose to be a blessing to others. We can choose to be generous and to help people less fortunate than us. What a wonderful, amazing gift that he has given us. It's one of the greatest, greatest ways that he has honored us is by giving us the choice to make. So Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, live out your faith in right ways. And I I want us to be a church. Our staff and elders want us to be a church where we live out our faith and we enjoy it. Today, we're going to look at a concept called redemption. We're going to look specifically at a person called a kinsman redeemer. It appears in the Old Testament. Um, and, And it doesn't appear in the New Testament, but all the principles appear in the New Testament which shows me that this is a very core idea in the Old Testament. And we're going to capture this out of the story of Ruth. Ruth is the story of redemption. It's the story of a kinsman redeemer. So as the story unfolds, hopefully, if I've done my job, this, this kinsman redeemer uh, begin, will begin to emerge in a way that you can see yourself in this place, Okay. If you've never read the story of Ruth, I would encourage you to read it. It is a fantastic story. It's a story of a single household who is in trouble. They are really in trouble. And we'll talk about why in just a minute and what God does to bring them out of this these ashes, out of this, this, this place of destruction, and honors them at a very high level. It's a story about overcoming disaster through faith. It's a story about Naomi and Ruth and how Naomi became the mother of, Of one of the most respected households in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's the story of David's family. And here she is on the brink of disaster and death, and God rescues her, and she gives birth to her grand her daughter in law gives birth to a son who gives birth to David. So the line of David that's what we're talking about. Ruth is the central figure. In there, but there are three primary characters that relate to Ruth. We don't have time to read the story, so I'm going to give you uh, pertinent information about this story. One of those is Naomi. Naomi is the mother. Famine takes her away from her homeland. Her and her husband move to Moab because they are. Uh, uh, Mark, isn't that where you went, Moab? <laughs> yes, I go to Moab, but it's a slight variation. Slight variation. <laughs> Yeah, so they, so her and her husband with her two boys moved to Moab, and her boys marry Moabite women. So the decades roll on, life goes on, because they left because of a famine, and the, the husband dies, and the, uh, um, the two sons die, and now she's stuck. She's a much older woman, her daughters-in-law are grown, she has no way to care for them, and um, she's alone. She's poor, very, very poor. And so what does she do? So in chapter 4, we're going to see this whole kinsman-redeemer person and how they act within the story. So it raises the question, what will happen? How How will God take care of her? She leaves with the name Naomi, which means pleasant. And when she comes back decades later, all of her friends and family say, look, it's Naomi. She's come back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because God has taken everything away from me. I have nothing left. Well, then you have this Boaz. He enters the picture because she sends Ruth out to glean from the fields. You see, in ancient Israel, um, they were not to glean all of the field. They left the corners ungleaned. And if they were harvesting and they dropped stuff, they were supposed to leave it there. So that the poor and the foreigners could come and feed themselves. So she sends her out to go find a field, her young daughter-in-law, and she finds Boaz. Now, in the story, Naomi sends her two daughters-in-law back to their families and says, go home. Go back to your families. They will take care of you. Your families will provide husbands for you. One daughter-in-law went back, and Ruth said, no, I'm going with you. That's where you have the famous passage, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. So Ruth goes with her back to Israel, and that's when uh, Naomi says, go gather because she's an old woman. Go gather left what's left over in the field so we can eat. So she happens to coincidentally walk into the field of Boaz, who's a relative. So when she collects the, the gleanings from the field, she comes home and Naomi says, where did you go to get those? And she says, I went to a field by the name of Boaz. Remember, she's from Moab. She doesn't know the family. And uh, Naomi, with a twinkle in her eye, I think, says, Boaz. He's a family member. He is a kinsman redeemer. He will take care of us. So Boaz enters the picture, but we don't know anything about him. Will he take care of the family? Will he be faithful? What will he do? And then the third character is God. It's interesting that there's no direct conversation about God. There's no appeals to God. God does not surface in here. He's hidden all throughout the story, and yet the story is written in such a way that he's in the shadows every step of the way guiding the circumstances, the story. There's no question when you read it that God is present, even though he's not mentioned. Which is kind of what happens in our life, isn't it? That God is often in the shadows, but we're very conscious that he's present making things happen. And that's what he does. So he's the other character. So here's the setting and background. I've already given you some of it. Naomi's widowed daughters were foreigners, and they weren't bound by Israelite customs. So she sends them home, and they decide to stay. No, uh, Naomi was protected under the levirate marriage rules, and those rules are very simple, because women couldn't own property, they couldn't care for themselves, that sort of thing. If a wife, if a husband died, the brother, the nearest relative, married the wife, his brother's wife, and bore children through her in her brother's name. That kept the family going, okay? So she could have claimed, but she's much older. She could have claimed the rights under that, and she's much older, and she doesn't do that. This was common practice throughout the ancient Near East. That's how the widows were taken care of. So the law was designed to protect widows and orphans. The widow was to remarry remarry the nearest uh, male relative. That's really strange to us, isn't it? Imagine women marrying your brother-in-law. Doesn't that seem strange? But yet in that culture, that's how they were cared for. They had no other uh, way of doing it. Um, Since Naomi is looking for a kinsman redeemer, her husband had probably sold their land before he left because they were in trouble during the famine. So she comes back with nothing and not owning anything and broke and poor. She's too old to bear children. She's too old to carry on the family name. By the way, neither of her daughters-in-law had any children. And so what she thought is that God has cursed me. And um, I have no way now of having children. And um, so what a blessing it is when Ruth decides to follow and to go. This, the setting, when Ruth says, nope, I'm going to go back and I'm going to live with you, and honor you as my mother-in-law. Do you get the picture? How fantastic this story is. A story about faith and love and commitment and all that. Ruth is very committed. So because of this story, two key themes surface that are important to us today in our discussion. One is the idea of redemption. At one level, it's about redeeming land. Uh, Boaz is going to get into a conversation with another relative about who's going to buy the land back, who's going to take care of them. So they redeeming land. But that's a, that's a picture of a much deeper level story of redemption, which ultimately is realized on the cross. Because you see, redemption is uh, being redemptive is moving into someone's life that has gotten themselves in trouble. They've gotten themselves so deep in trouble that they can no longer get out. Isn't that the story of sin? We rebelled against the Lord. And we are in such deep trouble that we cannot get out of the trouble, and so a redemptive God is one who comes along and steps in and says, "I will take care of you." That's the underlying message underneath it. But there's another uh, another theme that services, and that's the idea of covenant loyalty or loving kindness of the Lord. The Lord is faithful to his promises. That's what we celebrate Christmas Eve, isn't it? And all through the Advent season as a congregation. The Lord remembered his promise. He did not forget us. His covenant. He is very loyal. And that expresses itself in this idea of loving kindness. All through the prophets, God is a kind and loving God. And that's why he remembers us. Because he loves us. And both of these surface in this story. So the basic story, um, when we get to chapter 3, and Naomi realizes that she has coincidentally, stepped into Boaz's field and she said she recognizes that God had just intervened. And so she sends Naomi back. So Naomi begins the chapter by watching out for Ruth, looking for a resting place. In this section, Naomi's going to encourage Ruth to initiate legal action to consummate a levirate marriage. She knows what to tell her under the law. So Naomi commands her to wash herself and dress herself. That's a signal that the mourning period is now over. In other words, she's available. And Boaz would have recognized this. Okay? You've got to remember, that in this part of the world, it's very unsafe to be a woman without protection. So we see that evidence by Boaz. When he sees her in the field, he goes to the man in charge. He goes, who's that cute woman out there? It's not quite what he said, but close. She's young, and he's old. And uh, and he says, that is uh, that is Ruth. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law. And he goes, huh, Naomi, my long-lost relative. And he says, you just watch out for her. Take care of her. Drop extra. When you harvest, leave extra stuff behind. Drop it. Let her glean it all. Just protect her and be safe. Make sure she stays safe. So he starts protecting her the moment he recognizes who he is. says something about his character. It's very faithful. So so Naomi wants Ruth to communicate to Boaz that she's available for marriage. And so maybe that's how it would uh, work out. Now, you have to understand, the other Israelites would have looked down on Ruth because she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite woman. And she's a widow, and she's needy and poor. Last thing we need is foreigners who are needy and poor. Right? That's what they thought. They would have thought. Boaz recognized the truth. He saw God's handiwork. So Boaz saw beneath this story uh, of a simple woman gleaning in his field, he recognized a much bigger story at work here. So um, in verse 4, when he lies down, this is Naomi talking to Ruth, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he'll tell you what to do. Go and uncover his feet. This is a Semitic idiom, which is a proposal for marriage. Ruth is propositioning Boaz for marriage. okay? I taught this at my last church. I wasn't on staff, I was working at seminary. We had a couple of young pastors leading our congregation, and they asked me if I would handle this because this is very sexually oriented when I get into it here. And uh, they thought being the wiser guy I could maybe handle it a little better. So I said, sure. So I get up there, I get there on Sunday to preach. You know what they call the sermon? Ruth to three, Ruth gone wild. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I walked into. It was great. So Ruth was obedient and faithful, but she goes much further than Naomi encouraged her to. Ruth challenges Boaz to marry her in verse 9. Um, he's laying down at the feet, and he, she uncovers. Uh, in fact, let's When Boaz, verse 7, had finished eating and drinking, it was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, because he's asleep, and she uncovers his feet and lays down. Okay? In the middle of the night, something startled him man. He turns and wakes up, and there's a woman lying there. <laughs> I love it. Who are you? He asks, and he says, I am your servant, Ruth. Now, That act alone he would have recognized was her way of saying, Would you marry me? But she goes on and she says, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a family guardian, since you are a kinsman redeemer. So, spread your garment over me. This is a very potent phrase. It has very strong sexual connotations in the ancient Near East, as well as legal connotations. So Ruth has gone one step beyond Naomi's advice. She is soliciting Boaz to marriage through a sexual proposal. That's how bold she is. You didn't do that in the ancient Near East. And she she challenges him. She basically challenged him as a nearest relative and said, cover me with your garment. That's a way of saying I'm making myself available to you, sexually. Make me your wife. Okay. She challenges him because she said you're the you're the kinsman redeemer. That's your responsibility under the law. Well, Boaz's Ruth. Uh, Boaz's response is significant. Um, he recognizes that Ruth is is offering herself to him and therefore all of her family which includes Naomi is involved in this legal transaction and so he he just chuckles and he said you are a good woman you could have you could have made yourself available to any younger man but you care more for your mother-in-law than you do your own happiness so you have shown covenant loyalty to your mother-in-law he recognized instantly what she was doing so he gives her instructions on what to do and, um, and it, those instructions are protecting her. He calls her a woman of noble character, which is the phrase out of Proverbs 31, a godly woman. He saw it. But he said, I can't do this. I can't, I can't consummate a relationship, and I can't do this, because there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I am. He was the second person in line, but there was another one closer, which Ruth didn't know about. He said, so you just stay here and rest for the night, and uh, I have other guys. I'll take care of you. Quietly go home, and then when you go home, I'll take care of it. So he goes to the city gate, first chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the family guardian he had mentioned came along. This kinsman redeemer, that's the name for the family guardian. He's a title. He's the nearest relative. <coughs> Boaz says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Well, my friend is a nice translation. It's kind of sterilizing it a little bit because he's not named. Now, all through the story of Ruth, the names carry the story. All the names have different meanings. So the names um, carry the theology of the story. you with me so far? This guy is not named. So some of your translations say in John Doe, come over here, John Doe, and sit down. Now, he's his relative, so he knows who he is. Come over here, Bill. No. So in the story, he says, come over here, John Doe, and have a seat. That's the author's way of letting us know that this person is about to shame himself. Okay. So he came over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. He said to the family guardian, this kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so, I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. I am next in line. And the man says, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, I love this, he waits until after he says, I'll redeem it. He says, oh, oh, and on the day you buy it, you also get Ruth, this Moabite woman, who's a widow. Remember, I just said that she wouldn't have been well-received among the Israelites. She's a dead man's widow, and you acquire her in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the family guardian said, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. He rejected his responsibility, his obligation, and he's given no name. So when you read this story in chapter 4, you can call him John Doe. You can call him no name because he's not even worthy to have his name mentioned. And they used a specific phrase to let you know that in this story. So, all right, now, just before this happened, I should tell you, Ruth comes back to Naomi the next morning. And Naomi says, so uh, what happened? <laughs> right? When Ruth, verse 16 of chapter 3, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? I love that. We like to sterilize things. Literally, who are you? That's the question. So who are you? what's not asking who she is. She's asking, are you now his wife or not his wife? What happened in the middle of the night? So Ruth tells her the story. So in chapter 4, this kinsman redeemer neglected to fulfill his responsibility. And so Boaz steps in, and he does it. And the story goes on. They live happily ever after. David is a grandson. He's born. All the honors restored. All the legal issues are fulfilled. Faith is, uh, is maintained. Everyth- everyone does what they're supposed to do except this one guy, and he's dishonored in this story. So... What does it mean to redeem? This was a person who took it upon themselves to act in defense of another family member. That's what it means. A family member has gotten in such deep trouble that they can't get themselves out. You see this language, for instance, in murder. uh, In the the concept of murder, Numbers 35. If one of my relatives is murdered, I'm responsible to honor them by capturing the murderer, by processing them pursuing him. Debt, Leviticus 29. If one of my family members gets in trouble and I can get them out of debt, financial debt, I'm obligated to do that. So we have this idea all throughout the Old Testament that somebody has gotten themselves in trouble, whether on purpose, accidentally, or foolishness, whatever, they've gotten themselves in trouble and the only way they can get out of it is somebody else rescues them. That's what a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer is. Okay, that's the basic storyline. So when 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 God redeems, it implies that the redeemed are family because that's how the word is used all throughout the Old Testament. So when he steps in to redeem and he calls himself a kinsman redeemer, I'm going to redeem you. The implied message is that we are his family. That's what he's trying to say. In other words, God is prepared to do whatever it takes, pay whatever it costs to protect, defend, and liberate those people in trouble. That's what happened at the Exodus, isn't it? That's where the word is first used in the Exodus story. Because the Israelites were slaves. They could not get themselves out of that predicament. So God stepped in and redeemed them. He purchased them out, bought them out. That's ultimately what happens at the cross. We have been redeemed by a true kinsman redeemer, God. Kinsman, he's our kin. Redeemer, he has redeemed us. At the heart of redemption, it means that God has come to help their people, help his people in their time of need. This is the core dynamic of healthy community all the way through the, the Bible. By the way, next week is our last week, and then we're going to start a study of Philippians. This is the core message of Philippians. Put one another as Place one another as more important than yourselves. And then he says, let me tell you about Jesus, because that's exactly what Jesus did. This is one of the core pieces of a healthy community. If we don't have it, it's an unhealthy community. You find yourself in this story? You, some of you, are in need of a kinsman redeemer. Others of you are in a position to act as a kinsman redeemer. So when you look through here, I'm just going to read through this fast. Listen to what the Bible says about all this stuff. We're called to rejoice because we've been brought out of slavery to sin. Matthew 6, we're called to forgive others, including debts. Luke 6, we're called to be merciful. John 15, we're called to love others. Ephesians 4, we're called to show compassion. Romans 15, we're called to accept others. 1 John 3, we are to sacrifice for others. Hebrews 13, we are to show kindness to strangers. James 1.27, which they put up in the video, we are to look after widows and orphans in their distress. This is all imagery in the New Testament that comes right out of the kinsman-redeemer picture. We are to move into the lives of others who are in trouble to help them. This is what it means to live redemptively in the lives of others. Redemptive living is one of the core pieces to developing a generous heart. Because you recognize God has blessed you specifically so that you can bless others. So what would it take to convince you that the reason why God has given you an abundance is specifically so that you can help others who don't have an abundance? It's not your money. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what would it take to convince you of that? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to pay whatever it costs to deliver someone else from bondage? That's what God did with us. That's what Boaz did with Ruth and Naomi. That's the story of the Kinsman Redeemer. When you think back about your giving, I can't answer this question and I'm not even going to try. I told you I'm proud of you. I love you. I think you're very generous. But I have to to challenge you to take a minute and ask the question, does your giving reflect this level of commitment? Or is it just something you do out of obedience? Is it just a transaction? You know, you can write a check because it's easy to do. Or is it a spiritual act of worship? Do you see it that way? Do you see it as a privilege, a privilege to step into the lives of those less fortunate and help them? That is the mark of a healthy church where we care for each other, we care for those around us. October 12th, our Outreach Ministries Festival, we're going to celebrate what God has done here. We're going to look at our missionaries. We're going to look at the things that we do. Uh, I just got back from Nepal. We educate young pastors. We feed people at the food bank. We help poor families through benevolence. We do all kinds of things as a church. That's why I say I just love this church. You're very generous. But now I'm calling you to ask a personal question. Does your own giving, is it given? Is it coming out of a generous spirit, a spirit that wants to help the people around you? Because you can Think about that when you give today. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward.